Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. As the economic crisis deepens, the many states are having a resurgence of the COVID pandemic and will be soon probably closing down again. Those are mostly states that open too early. But it does not look like a quick fix to the recession, nor is there going to be a quick opening in a broad way of the economy or a quick lessening of the millions of people who are unemployed. The Fed has shown, however, that when it needed to, it could come up with a lot of money. It's committed to about $4 trillion of stimulus in one way or the other. I say one way or the other because there's a chunk of this money is being spent to defend the assets of wealthy people to prop up the stock market. Some of it is being spent to help subsidize uh, going towards uh, the federal government being capable of adding to the unemployment insurance and other kinds of direct payments to uh, workers and small business loans and such. Uh, but a large part of the money is going to prop up the value of assets and rich people have more assets than non-rich people. At any rate, if there's going to be a change and if there's a Biden presidency and there's actually any political will to have real reform, uh, that reform is going to have to maybe even start with the Fed and what its role is because the Fed has the ability to finance programs of all all types. And the question is, is this Fed going to be funding programs that actually benefit the broad population or continues to essentially prop up assets of the wealthy? So now joining us to discuss this is Gerald Epstein. He's a professor of economics and co-director of Political Economy Research Institute, Perry, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. His recent book is Political Economy of Central Banking, Contested Control, and the Power of Finance. Thanks for joining us, Jerry. Thanks for having me, Paul. So uh, I would like to have a, a bit of a blue sky as they call it, discussion, meaning what could one do with the Fed if, if there was a real progressive government with a progressive mass movement to support it? And uh, of course, it's going to run into, as in the title of your book, the real power of finance, which is considerable. But first of all, let's just start with, for people that don't really have a handle on how we, how and why we have a Fed, uh, why do we have a central bank that has, that is so much controlled by private bankers? Well, uh, there are central banks in most countries around the world. And the history of central banks is that most of them s started off as private banks, uh, the Bank of England, uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, other banks. But most of these uh, private banks, uh, central banks, uh, evolved and were taking over, taken over by the government. And um, at that point, the private banks lost formal control over the central banks. The Federal Reserve, however, is different in that um, the, the private banks have continued to have a formal role as being members of the boards of directors of the regional Federal Reserve banks, of which there are 12. And, uh, and the Federal Reserve uh, has a lot of influence by bankers informally, where uh, bankers play a very important role in, 
in um, helping to frame what the Federal Reserve does. There's a revolving door between Federal Reserve officials and Wall Street. Uh, this is true to some extent of most uh, central banks, but it's extreme in the case of the United States and I would should say the Bank of England as well. Uh, now, um, it's time to get the banks out of the Federal Reserve and, and make the Federal Reserve a clearly non-bank public institution. Yeah, because there's a lot of talk, uh, especially on, on the analysis.news, but other places, about the need for public banking. Well, it's kind of crazy. The most powerful bank in the country really is the Fed. And, in, and it really should be a public bank with a, with a public interest mission, not a stock market interest mission. But as long as the Fed is more or less controlled by people who are all connected to asset management and, and stock markets, how is it going to play any other role but to make that its, its priority? So, so what would it take to make the Fed a real public central bank? Well, before we go there, let me just say, I think this these two crises we've had back to back, the great financial crisis of 2007, 2009, and now the fallout from the corona crisis has really made the point very clear what you just said. Namely, uh, in both cases, the Federal Reserve was confronted with an, uh, a real crisis for the whole economy, for workers, for homeowners, um, for states and locales, and and um, uh, so forth. But in both cases, and it's become increasingly clear this case, that uh, the Fed has primarily bailed out the wealthy by propping up asset prices, the stock market, um, lending money, uh, corporate corporations buying corporate bonds. Um, <clears throat> so they created a lot of facilities to buy assets and make loans. And most of these uh, benefited uh, the wealthy and the banks and the corporations. <clears throat> For the first time, though, they also created they were also created facilities uh, from pressure from the Congress to help out um, uh, workers and state and local finances, but uh, and, and medium sized businesses and small businesses. But these uh, facilities have been so poorly con constructed that the Federal Reserve has given very little in the way of loans to state and locales and um, others. So most of the, the support that the Fed has given has given to, to Wall Street. And that's just because that's their natural operating procedure. It's been that way for decades. And it's because of this nexus that we just talked about between Wall Street and the Fed. And that has to change. And uh, we've done some stories about this, but I think it's important to make the, the point again. They're actually propping up the stock market. I mean, it, it's like a ridiculous situation. Millions of people unemployed. The real economy is was was at a halt, and it's still to a large extent at a halt. You know, by all normal reckoning, the stock market should be tanking. Except it's back to historic highs. It's insane, and that's because of what the Fed's doing. That's right, because the Fed is uh, buying financial assets, pledging to keep interest rates low indefinitely. And uh, that's a natural boon to people who own financial assets, where instead of that, it should be lending directly to uh, those that need it, small businesses, states and locales, uh, uh, workers and nonprofits. Um, and even though the Federal Reserve set up some facilities that's made uh, some initial um, steps towards doing that, 
they've uh, created them in such a way that it's so costly for people to borrow from it um, that it's not being used. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a bit about this. They've committed like four trillion dollars of uh, various kinds of stimulus money in the because of the pandemic. But what is it? Something less than a trillion has actually gone out the door. Uh, what's what's going on here? Well, let me give you an example of something that I've been working on uh, quite closely. Um, as you as you know, states and locales are in terrible trouble. The ideal way to deal uh, to help that would be for the uh, government um, to give uh, grants to states and locales to help fund education, uh, their health care systems, etc. Uh, but the government uh, isn't doing that. The Congress has passed the HEROES, first the CARES Act and then the HEROES Act, but the Senate hasn't picked up the HEROES Act. <coughs> so the Federal Reserve created this facility to lend to, uh, to municipalities and state governments. It's called the MLF, the, uh, the Municipal Liquidity Facility. Um, it can lend up to $500 billion dollars uh, to states and locales to fund their um, activities. But they set the interest rate so high and the term so so short, that is only three years, that only one state, uh, Illinois, has borrowed from it. So they have $500 billion capacity to lend and um, only about a billion or two has, has gone out the door uh, because the Fed is just uncomfortable with lending uh, to the people. It's uncomfortable with lending uh, to the real economy. It's mostly comfortable with lending to Wall Street. Okay, so let's let's start to imagine that there is a this movement in the streets is able to get at least back in the streets, and if not online in a big way, uh, let's. Uh, Imagine, and this is not a big stretch, Biden does get elected. And uh, if the election was today, I don't think there's any doubt he would be. Uh, but let's see what happens by November. Uh, if not, Assuming Biden's still with us and assuming Trump's still with us. And who knows what shenanigans Trump has in mind. But let's assume things take their course. W what would a progressive's demand if, if by any, you know, Biden created this, these committees with uh, Sanders to come up with different kinds of proposals in different areas. Interesting enough, not a single joint team on foreign policy, but that, that's a different question. But uh, it, when you get to the question of finance, the financial sector, the power of finance, and specifically the Fed, what, what would your recommendations be? And let's just assume the best. So there are... Um Two broad, at least two broad aspects to this. One is financial regulation, and one is uh, transforming the financial system, in, including the Fed. Now, interestingly, out of these two crises that we've had, <clears throat> uh, there have been some kernels of genuine reform that have come out uh, of both of those that have that have been stifled or ignored, but could be built up, built upon. So, for example. Um, after the great financial crisis, uh, the Dodd-Frank uh, Act, uh, there was a lot of discussion in the, in the process of that that actually would have been uh, very uh, important to, to do. One is breaking up the big banks, uh, putting on asset caps or, or something like that, um, 
getting rid of uh, derivatives and other and, or regulating derivatives and other kinds of, of risky assets, uh, regulating the shadow banking system, including the asset managers, which I know you, you've been talking about. Of all of the all of these things were proposed in the Dodd Frank um, discussion. Uh, a couple of them were were implemented, were, were at least put in the bill, but they were never implemented, and now um, they, it's been totally uh, ignored. But there's a lot of discussion that came out of Dodd Frank that could be implemented and would make a a, 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 a big help, in, including primarily breaking up the big banks and getting the shadow banking under control. But the problem with breaking up the big banks is that these smaller banks that are left, aren't they still more or less in the control of the same pools of capital? And and as we saw from telecom, when they were broken up, over time, they kind of all get back together again. Isn't there a need for real public banking on a large scale to counter that, that power? I'm not, I was, certainly wouldn't argue against breaking up the big banks. But I, I don't see how that on its own deals with it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. So um, in order to, to sustain that and uh, to make sure that the financial se sector operates in the interests of the people, we do need a, a significant uh, public banking sector. And um, in order to, to get a public banking sector, uh, we need some centralized infrastructure to support and subsidize and um, help develop this public banking se sector. Um, and that's where our discussion, that links to our discussion of the Federal Reserve. What the Federal Reserve has been doing is subsidizing and supporting uh, for decades the uh, mega banks um, and the private banks. Uh, but what we need is uh, an institution. It could be the Federal Reserve. It could be another institution whose job it is, is to provide the backstop, the loan guarantees, the subsidies, uh, lines of credit, et cetera, uh, to support the development of a whole variety of, of public financial institutions, uh, financial institutions at, this, at the local level, at the regional level, financial institutions globe, uh, nationally, for example, a green bank um, or a set of green banks uh, to help finance the Green New Deal. Um, so these banks cannot sprout up on their own. They need a, a an infrastructure created by the central gov the federal government. And if the Federal Reserve isn't the right institution to do that, then we need to create a banker's bank, a banker's financial institution to underwrite all of these institutions. So I, I completely agree with you. We have to break up the large banks and we have to build a network of a variety of uh, public banks that are supported by um, the federal government. And what do you do with these big asset managers like BlackRock and Vanguard? You know, they claim they're passive investors, but I think the evidence is that they're they're more than passive. They, they, they even on their own website, BlackRock says they engage informally with the management of companies. We know they control the votes, uh, essentially control the voting of about 96% of the S&P 500. And they've become, they've become the real behemoths of uh, Wall Street. I think they're up around, what, f 15, somewhere between 14 and $17 trillion now. I'm not sure after the COVID uh, closing and whether they're where they are exactly. But uh, they, they have more wealth than the GDP of China. Um, what do you, how does the Fed relate to the power of them? They claim, as I say, that they don't get involved, but, but they do. And the concentration of ownership is beyond most people's imagining. 
Yeah, so there are a couple of things here. One is uh, there never w were adequate regulations put in uh, for the non-bank financial institutions, uh, like the asset managers, the private equity firms, the hedge funds, et cetera. That was completely left out of the Dodd-Frank. There were discussions of doing it. So for, for one thing, you need a regulatory uh, umbrella for all these institutions, including the asset managers. But then there needs to be a specific um, antitrust orientation towards the way the government deals with uh, these behemoths that help to, to concentrate power. Um, and so uh, there has to be a regulatory, but then an antitrust element to that uh, that's implemented. And I don't know, think the Fed is necessarily the right institution, institution uh, to do both of those, uh, but we do need um, both of those to happen. Uh, in terms of the Federal Reserve itself, uh, again, there's lessons that we uh, can draw from the most recent um, crisis. And the ways in which the Federal Reserve has been pushed by the Congress, by progressives in the Congress, uh, to, to do more, to help out Main Street, to help out state and local governments, um, to stop its, fo its uh, singular focus on Wall Street and start helping out others. Uh, th there's two things about this. One is that it shows that this whole um, fetish of having the Federal Reserve be, quote unquote, independent uh, is no longer uh, politically independent. Um, is no longer uh, feasible if it ever was. Uh, in fact, the Federal Reserve was never independent of the of Wall Street. Um, it was just independent of the democratic process. But now, uh, with the crisis, the two crises, it's clear that the Federal Reserve has to be part of the overall government apparatus that um, revives the economy and that that allocates resources uh, to where they need to go. And this includes, as I talked about earlier, the Green New Deal, public banking, um, uh, dealing with the, the huge racial disparities that we have in our in our country. And um, what this means is that uh, the, the Federal Reserve has to be, its policies have to be integrated clearly into the government. Now, one way to do that without risking a total centralization of the Fed, which I think is dangerous, is to build on the regional Federal Reserve structure that uh, was uh, created in 1913. That is, uh, we have these 12 regional reserve banks, um, uh, and uh, these regional reserve banks can play an important role in um, managing uh, credit policies in their in their districts, uh, in uh, having more democratic uh, membership uh, of the of the regional reserve banks. It can become a very decentralized system where that's um, better, where, where it's more democratic, and but of course there still will have to be uh, the centralized component of it in, in the Board of Governors in Washington, uh, where it's integrated into into the goals of the of the administration. So in your mo in your model, how do how does the Board of Governors get selected? I mean, should it be elected? I don't think it should be elected, but um, what 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 uh, what we need to do is make sure that the Board of Governors uh, that there's a real um, selection process by the president and by the Congress uh, that um, that has a slate of candidates that is broadly representative of of people of the unions of of racial minorities and so forth. That has to be written explicitly into an amendment to the the bylaws of the Federal Reserve. 
um, that it has to be more representative of society as a whole. Just as there are uh, designations like that in the in, in the designation of the boards of the regional reserve banks. Uh, that has to be true of the Board of Governors uh, as well. This is very important in terms of the integration of the Federal Reserve into the overall um, fiscal policy, because following the crisis, if we ever get out of this, there's going to be a very large budget deficit. The hawks am among both the Democrats and the Republicans are going to call for raising taxes, cutting government expenditure, and so forth. Um, it has to be very clear that uh, the central bank can continue to finance significant uh, deficits up to uh, a significant degree. Um, I don't think it's unlimited the way some do, but it's certainly up to a significant degree so that we can really get out of this uh, corona crisis without falling back into this austerity the way uh, that happened after the great financial crisis. What, what do you think the limits are? I think the problem is we don't know what they are. Um, we, we know some of the char characteristics of, the, of, of things that would would generate limits. We know that if um, if the United States government keeps uh, flouting international norms, cutting off international diplomacy, um, cutting off our, our trade and financial relations with the rest of the world, that the international role of the dollar, which is really the linchpin of the United States being able to borrow extensively um, in, in the open markets, um, if, if all that continues to erode the way it has under President Trump, then um, that makes it much more likely that some other currency, like the, the Chinese UN, uh, the euro, some other currency, will really come up and, and seriously rival the dollar. And in a, in a seriously multi-currency kind of system, I'm not, I don't think these are going to replace the dollar, but in a serious multi-currency system, then the ability to borrow internationally indefinitely uh, is called into question. And once it's called into question, then that generates um, fears and risks and so forth, so that it's much easier for investors to dump at the dollar uh, if they think the uh, deficit's getting too large, etc. It just becomes much more difficult to manage the economy with, with a massive deficit. So um, I think in some ways, that is the major constraint on the ability of the of the United States to continue running this game here. So it's essentially a, a confidence game. As long as people think the American dollar is uh, credible, then it is. But if they start doubting it, then then it isn't. Is that? I think. Yeah, I think that's what it amounts to pretty much. Uh, I saw an interesting study by the Brookings Institute from a couple of years ago, and they, they calculated the total amount of assets in private hands, and meaning wealth minus uh, liabilities. So I can't remember the exact number of the total amount of wealth, but then they divided it by the population of the United States. And there was enough wealth to pay if they divided up all the actual assets uh, to every individual over three hundred thousand dollars per person, meaning a family of four would get, you know, over a million dollars. So, so there's a lot of actual wealth backing up 
the, this, the, this investment, the stimulus, I would assume if there's any objective measure of how much debt there can be, it has something to do with how much actual, what is the aggregate of wealth in the country? Because in theory, at least the state could, if it had to tax some of this wealth back, um, does does that enter into how people envision why this and and how far this spending can go? Sure, um, and you're you're right that uh, a wealth levy, a wealth tax, uh, if it came to that, um, as has been, you know, as uh, it took place in some countries after the Second World War, as has been recommended uh, it, it, for Italy. Uh, its deficits, its debts running so high, et cetera. Uh, that is certainly one um, possible way to deal with this problem were it to come to a, uh, a head. So there's no question that the United States um, has a lot of capacity to, to run deficits. Uh, part of it is what I was talking about. Part of it is the wealth. Um, and um, so, and part of it is the fact that a lot of the borrowing that the United States uh, engages in, in is from U.S. citizens themselves. It's not from foreigners at all. So, yeah, the the, the majority is that, isn't it? The, the I, I did an interview with Mark Blythe the other day, and he was saying that too. That that when you see this debt, you have to realize that for the other, the flip side of that is that it's savings for. Uh, mostly, you know, Americans, uh, uh, mostly wealthy Americans, but still, it's not like it's left the shores or something. No, that's right. But of course, yes. So that that gives a lot of flexibility as well. But it's at the margin that it's the foreign debt, and we economists are, are fond of talking about well, what happens at the margin if the foreigners, if the Chinese start dumping American debt, um, then uh, is that going to really uh, change the uh, exchange rate and the interest rates in such a way? that it would cause a problem. I'm not expecting that scenario. I'm just saying it's comforting that a lot of it is, is owned um, by Americans, uh, but a lot of it also is owned by foreigners. Um, so, anyway, the point is, I think right now, most economists agree that the United States, given our wealth, given our the role of the dollar, et cetera, um, has a huge capacity to borrow. And um, it's it's really important that uh, the politicians and the Federal Reserve uh, are on board. If uh, once a Biden administration, if a Biden administration were to come in in um, in into power, uh, not to impose uh, an austerity kind of policy, uh, it would be a terrible mistake. That's what happened to Obama and uh, many other um, uh, um, center left or center governments around the world, um, and it would just be a disaster. Let's go to something concrete that the Fed could do now without a, a major reform of its structure. Uh, you have a proposal for what you're calling human capital bonds. How does that work? So this relates to what I was talking about earlier. States and locales are in terrible uh, financial situation, and this includes um, uh, funding of schools, uh, you know, Trump keeps talking about open the school, open the schools, <laughs> but a lot of state governments don't have the money to pay, to pay uh, teachers. Um, and th the reason why states are in such terrible financial shape is because tax revenues have uh, fallen through the floor. And, um, of course, there's extra expenses associated with virtually all these state uh, government activities. Now, the first choice would be, as I said, to have the, the federal government 
give large grants. Some people have estimated that we need 500 billion, others a trillion dollars uh, to states and locales to fund public services, including education. Um, but short of that, uh, the Federal Reserve has the capacity and has already facilities set up uh, that could lend um, up to $500 billion to, to fund activities like education. Uh, the problem is that most states have balanced budget uh, laws. That is, they're not allowed, they have to uh, have a balanced budget when it comes to current expenditures, like for salaries and so forth. Um, they're allowed to have a capital budget, however, for building, to build buildings and roads and bridges, et cetera, things that are of longer gestation. So even if the Federal Reserve uh, did open the spigot and was willing to lend to states, could the states really borrow to pay for teacher salaries, uh, salaries of janitors in schools, et cetera, et cetera? And uh, most states would be very constrained in their ability to do that because um, their current expenditures. So my proposal is that states should, should be allowed to issue um, human capital bonds for education, for current educational expenditures, understanding that investing in an education of our young people is one of the most important and most productive long-term investments that there is. Um, and uh, it's kind of a, a, a misnomer to think of this as current expenditure for teacher salaries, et cetera. This is really a type of infrastructure investment. Um, and this would help states, I think, be able to borrow longer term to fund current expenses in education, especially during the crisis, um, without having their credit ratings uh, reduced or, or impaired. So um, <clears throat> I've been working with uh, some Massachusetts legislators and some others to see if there's any interest in this idea, we can push it forward. But they're, they're going to have to do something like this because the states and the cities are going into a catastrophic financial situation. Uh, the, there's, there's not going to be money to pay firemen and policemen and teachers and so on without some kind of massive federal help. That's right. And uh, maybe Mitch McConnell will realize that and the Congress will do what it should do, which is uh, actually give this money to the states. Um, but there's a second track to, to move along uh, to, as a backup for that kind of support, and especially if it, certainly if it doesn't uh, come through. Well, may, maybe this becomes the uh, what some of the far-right ideologues, which includes some of the billionaires behind Trump, but others have wanted, which is really the destruction of, of government. They're going to wind up getting it at the state and local level at any rate. Well, they probably have mixed views. They want to destroy, the, as you know, they for many years, they've wanted to destroy the unions and all public and social services. They wanted to privatize education as much as possible. But they've always wanted to leave um, the, the, the people they can perceive to be harder to educate or poorer people or minorities um, to, to be uh, taken over by the, the state. And not much, and there has to be, at least even from their perspective, some minimal <laughs> Uh, funds to, to educate the rest of the people. Uh, it's a horrible vision, but uh, that's probably the vision that they have. All right. Thanks very much for joining us, Jerry. Okay. Thank you, Paul. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast.